0: We are looking at Psalm 90 this morning, so if you'd like to look there. I'm going to read the first six verses and then skip down to verse 12, but as we look through Psalm 90, we'll be looking at most of the chapter. This is uh, verse 1. Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or, or you brought forth the earth and the world, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that's just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning, though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it's dry and withered. And then verse 12, Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We're in a series I'm calling It's About Time. We're thinking about time and our relationship to it. We've looked at how in the midst of the march of time, which, remember, is expressed by the Greek word chronos, God provides timely opportunities, expressed by the Greek word kairos, in which we can connect with him, be transformed, and change the world. We look closely at two biblical examples of timely opportunities, of kairos moments. And the first, a young woman, Esther, almost missed her kairos moment by waiting too long to act. And the second, a national leader, Saul, did miss his kairos moment by refusing to wait to act. We've seen that entering a kairos moment, taking advantage of a God-given opportunity, always requires faith. Sometimes it's the faith to act. Sometimes it's the faith to wait. But it's always personal faith in the living God. It's not faith that things will get better. It's faith in God. Today I want to step back from those close-up examinations to take in the bigger picture. I want to provide a theological framework for our responses to these kind of opportune moments, these kairos moments. And I can't think of a better place to find materials for constructing that frame than in Psalm chapter 90. Psalm 90 has been attributed to Moses since ancient times. Now, the attributions in the Psalms are not original to the text, but this one's very old. So ancient writers believed Moses had written this psalm. And there's little reason to reject his authorship. If he did indeed write it, then we have an instructor here who knew all about entering and about failing to enter those kairos moments. Psalm 90 will help us put things in perspective. And we need that because our spiritual vision is astigmatic. We make some things bigger than they are, and we make something smaller than they are. We need vision correction. On the day that Green Bay Packer, great Reggie White, died, age 43, the day he died, the NFL was gearing up for the playoffs. One of the most important games that day was between the Colts and the Chargers. On that day, Peyton Manning set the all-time NFL record for touchdown passes in a single season, and he helped the Colts position themselves for the playoffs. But in a post-game interview, Tony Dungy, who was head coach of the Colts at the time, tried to put things in perspective. He said that Reggie's death makes you understand that as great as this game is, it's not as big a deal as we think. Reggie always said, the Lord only gives you one day, and you better make the most of it. Well, what Dungy wanted to do, put things in perspective. That's what I want to do this morning. There are things we honestly think, honestly think, are greater than they are. And we're stressing out about them. And there are things that are greater than we realize and we're overlooking them. We need some vision correction. Or we're going to miss those God-given opportunities because we're focused on the wrong things. In Psalm 90, if it was really written by Moses we have to come to it in that light. So verses nine and 10, for example, are written from within a specific context and we need to read them that way. This is verse nine. All our days pass under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength yet their span is but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass and we fly away. How discouraging is that? But remember the context for these verses. Israel was under God's judgment for their lack of faith and their disobedience. They missed their kairos, their interact with God, change the world moment, because they didn't trust God and didn't obey him. Now they were destined to live out their days as nomads, without homes and without comforts. That's the background for that line. All our days pass away under your wrath. That's specific to the wilderness generation situation. But... What this psalm does is take that specific situation and frame it. And that makes it relevant to us because our specific situations, yours and mine, are situated in that same frame. To the degree that we're cognizant of that, of that larger frame, we're less likely to stress out and more likely to be aware and enter into those kairos moments when they come. So this psalm starts off by giving us a different perspective than we're used to. Perspective is dictated by the direction we're looking. And we're usually looking at ourselves and our problems. And that's why we miss our kairos moments, those moments to interact with God and change the world. We are so focused on ourselves and our problems that we don't see what God is doing. We don't see the approaching opportunity to trust him for what it really is. We're like a guy who misses his exit or his entrance because he's not looking out the windshield, but inside the car for a ticket or a CD or a snack. We ought to be looking to God, but we're occupied with looking at ourselves. The opening verse of this psalm guides our eyes away from ourselves and our problems and to our God. It relativizes our temporary problems by setting them before the eternal God. Even 40 years in the wilderness shrinks when it's placed beside the God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Death itself, the biggest and most unmanageable thing we'll ever face, is relativized before the eternal God who conquered death and brought life and immortality to light. When we stand before God, other things fall in place. Before God, other things assume their proper size. Moses calls this God our dwelling place through all generations. God's people have a permanent address and a person to come home to. I knew a couple some years ago who worked for a construction company that built Walmart distribution centers. They hired in one Walmart built here. And then they traveled around the country for years building distribution centers in other states. When I saw them occasionally, I felt sorry for them. If you asked them where they lived, they wouldn't have known how to answer you. They had no permanent address. But God's people have a permanent address. They have a dwelling place, a place to call home. When I go visiting around the county or I leave the county for some meeting or a conference, I don't have to think about where to go when I get ready to leave. And when I first moved here, sometimes I had to think about it, but And even now, there are times when I'm in some place and I don't know which way to go, but I always know to which place I want to go. I orient my life around 220 East Lockwood Road and around my family. God's people orient themselves around Him. They can judge everything by its nearness or its distance from Him. Compared to God, the ancient mountains are a passing fad. The earth and all its societies are a momentary flash in the pan. Time is in God's hands, but God is not in time, at least in the same way we are. When your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother was in her mother's womb, God was not any younger than he is now. Time is measured by change, and God does not change. That's the point of verses 1 and 2. But we do change, and that's the point of verses 3 through 6. We are made of dust, and to dust we return, and our accomplishments will be forgotten. For us, a thousand years is almost unimaginably long. For God, it's like a day gone by. Seems like nothing. It's like a watch in the night. We're like the grass that springs up bright and green in the morning on a Palestinian hillside and is brown and dead by evening, undone by the Middle Eastern sun. We suffer, as one scholar put it, the insecurity of transience. We sang the Isaac Watts song this morning, but we didn't sing this verse of it. Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. We're traveling at high speed, and there are only so many entrances and exits before we come to a literal dead end. Why is it that way? Why are people who were made to eat of the tree of life and live forever, Nothing more than momentary flashes in the pan. Why do we suffer the insecurity of transience? The answer comes in verse seven. Though it's harder to see the connection in the NIV than in the old King James Version. It starts with the explanatory conjunction for. For, life is so transient. For, we are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. That's why we're so transient, so ephemeral. This explains why we're but momentary flashes in the pan, for we are consumed by your anger. Israel was a case in point, but of a larger problem. The unbelief and disobedience that characterized them characterizes humanity. God and people are not at peace with each other because people have turned their backs on their Creator that's the biblical story. They were made to live forever, but that life was dependent upon a connection with the eternal God, a connection that's been broken. Think of it this way. When, when your computer, your laptop battery is charged, you can sit anywhere and work. You can sit at home, you can sit in the office, you can sit on an airplane and work. But the moment you unplug it, the battery begins to drain. If it's been unplugged for a while, it's not going to last long. In the Bible, the first generations of the rebellion, those first generations, they lasted for a long time after they were unplugged, you can think of Methuselah, but their lifespans gradually shortened. Apart from connection to the power source, people can't last, they can't last, and they can't shine. Why were humans unplugged? The three-letter, politically incorrect, scholastically unsophisticated answer which happens to be the Bible's answer and my answer, is sin. Individual humans sin and bring all kinds of problems on themselves. But humankind as a whole has sinned and lost its original connection with God. Look at verse 8. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Moses is thinking of the Israelites and their failure, failure to believe and obey God. But he could have said something similar about us this inability to trust God and the corresponding unwillingness to obey him present a huge problem for humans. It's resulted in our transience. It's the reason St. James can write, what's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We think that this unbelief and disobedience, this sin, is not really a big problem for us. Maybe for other people, but not for us. What's funny is that other people think the same thing. I, I've sat in a cell with a murderer who thought her sin was not her fault. It was other people's fault. Other people were worse than she was. We make light of our sins, which is sort of like making light of cancer, our cancer or our heart disease. The National Geographic once published a time-lapse photo, and I may have seen this at Dave and Virginia's house, I think they might have had this same photo, and it's, the time-lapse photos superimpose a series of photos into one picture, right? So it takes hours of constant photographs and compresses them into one picture. This one was taken from a rocky mountain peak during a terrific thunderstorm. It captured every lightning strike through this long storm and then compressed them into one picture. And when you look at it, you see this fascinating spider web like network of lightning bolts. I think that's how God sees our sin. Remember, He's not in time in the same way we are. He sees all our individual acts in one all encompassing vision. Where we only see isolated acts, God sees a complex, comprehensive web of action. To us our sins seem insignificant and frankly they seem infrequent. We often take little notice of them, but God notices. He sees the whole from his panoramic viewpoint and he understands how devastating what he sees really is. Because he's not limited to one moment in time as we are. Our sins are always before him. The damage they do to other people, to our families, our co-workers, And especially to ourselves, he sees with perfect clarity. Our only hope is to go to God, to the very one from whom we're separated. The one who brought the judgment of death on us in the first place. By divine mercy, there's no other option. But to go to the one who's righteously angry over our sins. It's like the thief going to the policeman for help. And like the thief, we're reticent to go. But God has made it abundantly clear that he will accept us, whatever we've done, because of what he's done through Christ. So, go to God. How do you do that? Primarily through prayer. The remainder of Psalm 90 is comprised of six Prayers or six prayer requests. They show us what it looks like when mortals go to the eternal God. The first of those prayers is found in verse 12. Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. This is a prayer for awareness. To employ the terminology we've been using for the last couple weeks, it's a prayer for us in the stream of chronos to be aware of kairos, of the connect with God, change the world, transform your soul moments that come our way. Moses knew that we could fail to number our days and remain unaware of what God's doing. We have the ability to ignore the passing of time and turn life under God into life as usual. But when we do that, it almost guarantees that we're not going to take advantage of those God moments in our lives. The second prayer is for mercy from the compassionate God. That's verse 13. I want you to notice Moses does not take mercy for granted. He prays for it. Over the years I've met many people who presume on the mercy of God. They've heard that God is merciful, they've heard it in church, God is love, God loves you. And so they assume they can just continue on as they always have and everything will turn out fine. And they're right that God is merciful, more than they've ever dreamed. But they're badly mistaken about what that means. Because God is merciful, he will not allow us to continue on a path of spiritual and personal ruin. Because he's merciful, he will not allow our web-like network of sin to go on forever. Because he's merciful, he will change us, grant us repentance, make us new people. Don't pray for mercy, if by mercy you mean freedom from the consequences that result from acting as if God doesn't matter. That would not be mercy, that would be madness. The third prayer is in verse 14. Having asked God for mercy, Moses now asked for a new satisfaction in life. I think some of us need to ask that prayer. Make that prayer. For joy and gladness in God's unfailing love. That's a great prayer to pray for yourself. To pray for your family. It's a wonderful prayer to pray for your church and its leaders a satisfaction and joy in life that comes directly out of the reception of God's love. The answer to that prayer will not only change individuals, but families and churches and communities. Pray it for your family. Pray it for your pastor and your elders and your deacons. Pray that prayer for yourself in verse 14. Fourth prayer is in verse 15. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us for as many years as we've seen trouble. The man who helped shape my thinking in ministry was 35 years old when he came to faith in Christ. One of the first prayers he offered was something like this, Lord, allow me to live as long with you as I've lived without you. Allow me as many years to serve you as I lived in ignorance of you. Moses asked for something similar. Notice he doesn't ask for as many days of prosperity and ease as they've had of trouble. He asked for something better than that. He asked for gladness. The gladness that comes right out of experiencing the love of God that was mentioned in the previous request. God would have us be glad. Just pause there for just a moment. God would have us. Be glad. I think one of my chief faults over the years is that I haven't been as happy as God intends. And the church needs me to be. God intends us to be glad. The fifth prayer is in verse 16. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. You know who sees God's deeds? They're the ones who are aware of him in daily life. Verse 12. They're the ones who don't let... Life passed them by in the rush of time. They're the ones, verse 13, who've asked God for mercy and forgiveness, not presumed upon it. They're the ones, verse 14, who are glad in his love. Those people and their children see God's deeds. They don't miss their kairos moments. Final prayers in verse 17, may the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us, establish the work of our hands for us. This is another great request to make for the church. This is not asking God to do a favor for his people. Oh God, give us this money we need or whatever. But to let his favor rest on his people, primarily by establishing the work of their hands. No one wants their life to mean nothing. I've been pastoring Lockwood for almost three decades. I don't want the work I've done to vanish as soon as I'm gone. I want God's favor to rest on Lockwood, to make the work that I've done, that my predecessors have done, and my successors will do, the work that the elders and deacons and ministry leaders have done. I want it to mean something. I want our work, our investment, our sacrifice to have consequences that will last for generations and for eternity. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us, establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. No one wants their life to mean nothing. But that is exactly what happens to people who miss their opportunities, their kairos moments to interact with God, change the world, and change themselves. See, meaning is derived from a connection to the eternal God who meant something when he made us. Apart from a connection with him, Time, like an ever-rolling stream, will bear all its children away. They will fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening of day. Our satisfaction now and our hope for eternity lies in a connection to the everlasting God. A while back, National Public Radio had a story on Morning Edition about a new product called Ticker. Ticker's a wristwatch, but it kind of works backwards. You input certain data into it, and then it uses an algorithm, just like the one the federal government uses, to estimate your time of death. So let's say it estimates that I'm going to die, I've got a ticker, it estimates I'm going to die on September 11th, 2037. It then displays the number of seconds I have left on Earth, and each one disappears down this digital black hole as the next one appears. It gives a whole new meaning to the idea, Stopwatch. <laughs> the inventor of ticker, interestingly, he was a former grave digger. The inventor of ticker believes that people won't waste their lives if they remain aware of their expiration date. And, and you know what, he may be onto to something. Maybe we all ought to get these. We could help us number our days right. But looking at your expiration date will not help if you don't also look to the one who set that date, and he wasn't estimating, and plans to meet you on the other side. We see Kronos when we look at our expiration date. We see Kairos when we look at our God. We live in the shadow of death when we look at our expiration date, but in the hope of eternal life when we look at our God. Look to God. Look to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you see us, you know what we're made out of. We're made out of dust. You know that we worry about things that if we would just look at you would take their rightful place. We go around in fear and anxiety or filling our lives with distractions. We make it hard on ourselves. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. as the eyes of the servant look to the hand of his master, and as the eyes of the maidservant look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to you, O Lord, until you have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Amen.